We're going to be reading this morning out of Mark chapter 8, verse 22 through 9, 1. When they arrived at Bethesda, some people brought a blind man to Jesus, and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Then, spitting in the man's eyes, he laid his hands and asked on him, Can you see anything now? The man looked around. Yes, he said, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. Jesus sent him away, saying, Don't go back into the village on your way home. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee when they were walking up near the village of Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, What do people say I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, But who do you say I am? Peter replied, You are the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anybody about him. Then Jesus began to tell them the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But you who give it up for my life, or give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what you do, you benefit if you gain the whole world, but lose your own soul. Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. Jesus went on to say, I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. That's the reading of God. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, church. It's good to, uh, good to be with you guys and not like apocalyptic heat or air quality that's at least somewhat normal, albeit still a little hazy. Uh, if you don't know me, if I don't know you, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, I'm John. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, it's actually kind of crazy. I th think this is, like, since my first service, this is the first time where I've got to preach with you all here, twice in front of the camera with an empty room. It's kind of odd. Good to see you guys. Good to see your faces. It's good to be with you. Looking forward to eating some some brisket and uh, enjoying what those guys are working up over there. I hope you can hang out and stay with us for a little bit. Uh, so as we're going to jump into our passage today, and thanks Ryan for reading that, there was, there was a lot there. 
I just want to remind us, refresh, think through some of what Char has been saying week after week. We're in this gospel, we're reading Mark, and it is, Mark is written for disciples. Char says this every week. It's a roadmap for discipleship to Jesus. In a time, I'm, I'm quoting Char here, in a time when there is a lot of confusion about what is going on, who we are and what we're to be doing, Mark's gospel is a roadmap for the people of God and how to follow in the way of Jesus. Our passage today uh, is sort of this hinge point in the gospel of Mark. For eight chapters now, we have been asking this question over and over and over again. Every week, we've been asking this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Also, just so happens to me, there's 16 chapters, chapter 8. We're like halfway through, guys. Good job. We did it. Well, halfway. Uh, From this point on, the tone in the Gospel of Mark shifts. Jesus, at this point, is now on the way to Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross. And here, with this declaration, with Peter's declaration at Caesarea Philippi, Mark's story reaches a bit of resolve and then pushes forward into this ultimate conflict. Until now, the disciples, the crowds, especially the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, they've all been arranged against Jesus on a scale from misunderstanding to all-out opposition. They've all been slow to understanding and hard of heart. Responses of faithfulness to Jesus have been few and sporadic. And when there has been faithfulness, uh, it's come surprisingly from outsiders. Think about the three stories of, of faithfulness, like positive responses to Jesus. They come from an unclean woman in Mark 5, the Syrophoenician woman, an outsider, in Mark 7, and the Gentile deaf-mute man, also in Mark 7. There's been a few declarations of Jesus' true identity that we've seen in this gospel, uh, but only from Mark as the narrator in 1.1, by God in further down in chapter 1, and interestingly, by demons. Three different times the demons have declared that he's the Son of God, or he's the Messiah. Not yet any humans. Nobody has actually come to this conclusion yet. And so here at Caesarea Philippi is the first breakthrough in the plot and the narrative of this gospel. And Peter's declaration is the first attempt on the part of the disciples to answer the question that's been lingering over us this entire time as we've read this gospel. Who is this? Who is this? You'll notice in our reading this morning, we left the story from last week of the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida. That was on purpose because these stories are arranged on purpose, I think, by Mark uh, in parallel. The blind man's healing closely parallels the discipleship's revelation of who Jesus is. We've been asking week after week, who is Jesus? This morning, I want to add another question. Who is Jesus, and what does that mean for me? 
Who is Jesus and what does that mean for you? Let's, let's look at this story and jump into it a little bit. So like I said, we started with the same story that we closed out last week because they're very much tied together. Like the blind man, the disciples have, they need to have their eyes open. You'll remember that Jesus' critique of the disciples was that they had eyes to see but didn't see. They need to have their eyes open. They need understanding. They need a revelation. They need healing. And it happens very similar to the way it does for the blind man. There's a similar process. The similarities actually are kind of crazy. In both stories, Jesus takes them outside of their comfort and their normal situation. He walks the blind man outside of town and he takes his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. In both stories, there seemed to be partial clarity, partial healing. There's progress. Then ultimately, there becomes full clarity. And then in both stories, they're they're charged not to go out and say anything, to remain silent. So let's look at the story a little bit. Some, Some people bring the blind man to Jesus to be healed. Mark tells us, which is amazing. Mark tells us that Jesus took him by the hand and walked him outside of the city and healed him. In this like progressive way, uh, he gets his eyesight but not clarity, right? He sees men walking around his trees. He doesn't have full clarity. So Jesus lays his hands on him and in this beautiful description of what happened, Mark says that his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus tells him not to return to the city, and Mark moves on to the next story. Verse 27, we see that Jesus has taken his disciples some 25 miles north of the town to the town of Caesarea Philippi. I think it's fascinating in many ways. Jesus takes these guys, what's at least a day's walk. Most commentators say this is a day's walk. If you're down for a 25-mile hike in a day, let me know. Let's, let's go. Uh, can you imagine hiking 25 miles in sandals? It, that's a little crazy. But let's go. If you guys want to go on a 25-mile hike, I'm down to try it. They're way outside of their normal stomping grounds. They are, Caesarea uh, Philippi is an unlikely place for this to happen for a few reasons. Its population was largely non-Jewish, the Gentile population primarily. It also was a site of two painful memories in Jewish in recent history. Uh, it was at Caesarea Philippi that the Romans gained a decisive victory in 200 BC that ultimately plunged the region into war, the Maccabean revolt, all that came out of there. Caesarea Philippi also had the temple, the sanctuary to the Roman god Pan. This is a pagan city. It's an ungodly place. And it's here in the outer regions of paganism and even hostility towards Judaism that Jesus is first proclaimed as the Messiah. This is a really big deal when you know, when you think about what's implied in those words, that he's the Messiah, the Christ. The word Christ or Messiah, it's, it's the same word. 
Christ is the Hebrew word, or, sorry, Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. It's a loaded title with tons of implications. Let's walk through this a little bit step by step. So while, this is, Mark says, while they were on the way to Caesarea Philippi, and as you study, as you get together with your discipleship groups and you look at the Gospel of Mark throughout the week, pay attention to this phrase, on the way. It's going to pop up like nine times in the next few chapters. Be looking for that phrase, on the way. It's interesting to me that Jesus asks for a judgment about him in the middle of the journey. He didn't wait to the end when all the questions were answered. He didn't wait till the proof was finally at hand. He asked for a determination from the disciples of who he was while still on the journey. Faith and discipleship cannot be rendered to the sidelines and removed from risk. Faith is a judgment about Jesus and a willingness to act on that judgment in the face of, possible, of other possible judgments. Faith only counts when it's in the midst of options. The disciples at this point in the gospel, for them, faith will necessitate a choice that's contrary to the prevailing consensus of the crowds and of their religious leaders. They'll have to make a decision that's not necessarily popular. True faith means actively following in the way of Jesus, not demanding a sign or turning to your own way. So Jesus asked two questions. His first question is, what, who do the people say that I am? What do they say that I am? And this, some water. It's warm out here. This question, Jesus begins to probe what the popular opinion of him was. It's kind of like he's looking at the polls, right? We're in, we're in an election cycle. Everybody's looking at the polls. Jesus is kind of looking at the polls. And according to this, Jesus is kind of trending in the polls. If you think about it, who do, who do they say that the crowd is saying that he is? A resurrected John the Baptist? That's kind of cool. Like John Baptist raised from the dead. Elijah come back. The Jews have been hoping for that for a long time. Or one of the prophets. I mean, these, these are good titles. However, Jesus is not content to know what others think of him. It's not enough to know what the crowd thinks and just look at the polls. His mission is not decided by his standing in the polls, but he is looking for a judgment of each of his followers whom he is called. So his second question that he asks, he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? The intensification here of this question from what others think to what the disciples think, it's playing off this theme that we've looked at for several, as we've gone through this, this outsider-insider theme. They say this, but what about you? It's worth noting, it's, it's 
interesting to me that the disciples didn't report anybody saying that Jesus was the Messiah. What's odd about that is that there's three specific times where we have demons saying that he's the Messiah, openly and in public, but somehow his Messiahship is veiled. They don't see it. This is the question that I think we need to ask ourselves. Who do you say Jesus is? One of my all-time favorite quotes, A.W. Tozer says this. He says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. It's true. Who is Jesus to you? Peter answers plainly, says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. This is a big deal for the Jews. We know from other, from extra-biblical texts, That the Jewish hope, the longing for a Messiah at this point in history was at a fever pitch. This is a highly political claim. The Messiah, the Jewish hope for the Messiah, they were longing for God's anointed king. He'd be the king to end all kings. The king to make everything right again. He would crush the Roman oppressors liberate the Jewish people and restore the dynasty of David. That's what's packed into that word Christ. When Peter says you're the Christ, that's what's loaded in that statement, in his mind. You're the king to end all kings. You're going to crush the oppressors and liberate your people. Interestingly, Jesus, at least in Mark's gospel, Mark's recounting of this story, he doesn't even really seem to respond. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't really confirm it. He just charges them not to tell anybody. I think this is because the disciples at this point are like the blind man in that story that we just looked at. They're beginning to see. They're getting some clarity. But they don't see everything. Jesus will continue his healing work as we go on. But at this point... None of them truly understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. Their understanding of Messiah is so tainted by their politics that it would not be helpful for them to share this good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Larry Hurtado, a commentator on the Gospel of Mark, he says this. In Mark, it seems that no one is allowed to acclaim Jesus openly as the Son of God or as Messiah. For any acclamation uninformed by the crucifixion is misleading and invalid. In other words, any definition of Christ that is not informed by the cross is not acceptable for Jesus. Let's look at verse 31. This is how he responds to Peter's declaration that he is the Christ. He says, and he began to teach them, saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. For the first time in this gospel, Jesus seems to speak clearly with his disciples about his identity and what he came to do. Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. 
Jesus accepts this title and immediately turns around and says things that they find completely appalling and shocking. It's like he says, yes, I am the Messiah, but I'm nothing like what you thought I am. Nothing like what you expected. Not only does he not fit into the messianic stereotype, he seems to define his mission in scandalous contrast to it. The meaning of his life is not about victory and success, but about rejection, suffering, and death. And in a change of events, I think putting his cards on the table, showing his personality a little bit here, Peter rebukes Jesus. He's furious. Peter's, Peter's upset. Why? Because he had an agenda. Peter had an agenda, and his agenda led from strength to strength. It did not include suffering. It definitely did not include a cross. And when he sees that Jesus is not working from his agenda to accomplish what he thought the Messiah should do, he rebukes him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 23, he says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Peter is the first person to stumble over this cross. Jesus didn't take too kindly to this. And we should, we should note here, Jesus won't be a puppet to our agenda. He will not be a tool to our, our political plan or our lifestyle. That's not how this works. So he looks at his disciples, which is fascinating, because apparently they were all thinking it. They were all upset, but Peter was the only one bold enough to actually speak up. So he looks at his disciples and he says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus completely breaks their idea of what the Messiah is. He says, and what he says has massive implications for his disciples then and for us now. I want to go back to what I said in the beginning. We're going to look at two main questions Who is Jesus? He's the Christ, He is the King of Kings. And what does that mean for me? What does that mean for you? Honestly, that's really good practice. I encourage you to think through those questions. As you read your Bible, as you're making decisions, as you're thinking through uh, conflicts or you need clarity in something, who is God? What did he do? Therefore, what do I need to do? That's how the gospel works. It's, it, the gospel is good news about what, who God is, what he's done, and because of that, I have to live in response to that. There's implications out of what, who God is and what he did, therefore I should live differently. We should live differently in light of everything that Jesus has done. So today, this passage begs the question, if Jesus is the Messiah, if he's the Christ, if he's the king, he's the king to end all kings, but he's the king that went to a cross... What does that mean for me? What does that mean for you? Verse 34, And calling to the crowd, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, 
If anybody would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There it is. That's, this is the crux of discipleship. To be a disciple is to be an apprentice of Jesus, a follower, a learner. It's much more than a beginner's course or something that we do for a few structured weeks or a class and then we move on. To be a disciple is to follow in the way of Jesus. This is the goal of Christian life. This is what we're here for. We are here to become like Jesus. It's not something that we do for a few weeks and then we go back to business as usual. We go back to the status quo. That's not how discipleship works. This is what it means to follow Jesus. If we are to follow Jesus, we must three things. We're going to look at these real quick, then we'll close up and get some food. If we are to follow after Jesus, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. What does that mean to deny ourselves? Number one, if we're going to follow Jesus, we must deny ourselves. Discipleship in the way of Jesus is a call to lay down our ambitions and our agenda. It's a call to lay down what we think defines us, lay it at the foot of the cross, and allow Jesus to give his life to us, to give us his agenda. This is really hard for us as Americans. Our entire worldview is shaped by our rights and our privileges. Everything around us, all the media force, all this billions of dollars annually is going to tell you that you have a right. You deserve it. Satisfy yourself. Jesus is saying, find a new way. Find his way. Base your life on the gospel and on Jesus. Follow him. Jesus, in going to the cross... He lost his identity. He laid down his relationship with the Father so that we could find ours. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for for my sake and for the gospel will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The word life here in the Greek... Uh, is the word psyche. It's the word that we get our word psychology from. It really, it denotes identity, your personality, your selfhood. What makes you distinct? What good is it for you to save your life and not gain Jesus? C.S. Lewis says it in the way only he can. He provides some clarity here. It's at the end of uh, Mere Christianity. He says this. He says, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time, so much of your money, so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones that you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself, 
My own will shall be yours. Isn't that good? C.S. Lewis. Second, he says, take up your cross. This is a crazy statement because if you think about it, Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. For us now, as we, th- we read this passage, the cross has this imagery of grace and love and forgiveness and this amazing act of, of compassion. But for these disciples, when Jesus says cross, it's a symbol of total and complete power of the empire of Rome. The cross was a method of achieving total submission of a conquered people. It was humiliating and completely effective at killing the offender. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you'll take up your cross. Every day, this is our daily task. Every day, we choose again and again to pick up our cross and to submit all of our rights, all of our ambitions, and choose to follow in his path. Again, C.S. Lewis, it was so good, I had two C.S. Lewis quotes here. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions, your favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. And this is, this is the key right here. Nothing that you have, nothing that, nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. And finally, follow him. This is the essence of what it means to be a disciple. We are to follow him. Literally, this is, this is what we're talking about. This is practice the way of Jesus. Over and over again till it becomes second nature. We practice the way of Jesus. We practice the way of Jesus a thousand times. N.T. Wright tells this story of, of uh, you guys know the story probably, of Sully, the, the pilot who landed his plane in the Hudson River. And it was this miracle that happened, right? This, he took off from LaGuardia, from the airport, ran into a flock of geese, lost his engines, and somehow managed to land his plane in the river, he made split-second decisions, and perfectly landed in the, in the river. You and I, if we were that pilot, most other licensed pilots, we probably would have failed. But this guy had practiced thousands of times scenarios. He was an expert in knowing what to do. This is what discipleship is. Small, little decisions, day in and day out. We practice the way of Jesus. So on the thousand and first time, when it matters, when we have to do something, when there's the... The response is imperative. We know what to do. It's second nature because we've practiced it over and over and over again. This is why we're talking about these these refuge rhythms. This is why we're talking about a a time of intentional discipleship. I want to go over these again real quick. I know we've been talking about them, but this is what we're talking about doing. Study the word. We're putting out ahead of time the passage that we're going to go over every Sunday. Study the passage. Let's all be in the Gospel of Mark together. Read it. Study it. Meditate on it. Pray through that text. Talk about it as you're reading it. Let that be the, a, a, a 
topic of discussion that comes up when you see members of refuge, when you see each other. Then hear the word. Come here on a Sunday morning as we gather, albeit outside for now, and be challenged and commissioned in the gospel to go back out and live your life as disciples on mission for God. And then apply it. Apply what we're learning in the context of community. This is super important, super practical. We're suggesting find groups of three or four, same gender preferably, meet regularly to grow as disciples. This could honestly be structured however works best for you. This is the term that we were using is intentionally organic, right? So like find out what's best for you. Adjust your schedule. This is discipleship requires that you make adjustments. Adjust your schedule to make it happen and make it a priority to meet with each other weekly if possible. Challenge each other to apply what the Lord is saying in the word. Pray for each other. Hold each other accountable. Allow each other to speak into your walk. They will see things. Others will see things that you don't see. And then finally, live it. This is where sort of the rubber meets the road. This is where we put our walk on display. Find ways to live out the implications of the gospel, this this, that we're studying week after week. Find ways to live out what that means for you, the implications of that, in the community. We put the family on display. If we're following Jesus and the gospel is the driving force of our lives, then we will, in community, live in ways that provoke questions for which the gospel is the answer. So when you're hanging out with other Christians, invite an unbeliever along. Get to know your neighbors. Look for people around you to show the good news, to talk about the gospel with. I want to close in some prayer and then Worship team can come back up, and we'll eat. If you do me a favor, let's stand up. Let's, let's, I just want to pray as we close out here. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. You are the king of kings, the king to end all kings. And God, I just... We repent for making you a means to our end. God, we ask that you would show us what you're really like. That you would even confront the ways that we we make you a God in our own image. That we think of you in ways that are not fitting of who you are. God, I ask that you would give us clarity that you would mark refuge as a people of the cross, that we would live as a cruciform people. God, I ask that we would practice the way, that we would live out the implications of the gospel in our day-to-day life, in the ways that we have conversations, the way that we spend time, the way that we raise our kids and do business and do life, that we would live out the implications of the gospel as we are following in the way of the cross. Jesus, we love you and we bless you. Amen.